Welcome back to another session of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 207 as we actually threaten to leave <clears throat> Rivendell. I think we're probably, well, it's going to be close, right? It's going to be close as to whether, whether we actually get out of uh, Rivendell before the Fellowship does. Uh, we're uh, starting to bear down into the Christmas season here and there's still a poem between us and the actual departure, right? So uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be close, I think. But um, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Um, uh, but uh, but hey, we get to um, <clears throat> discuss tonight the continuity of stories, which I'm really looking forward to. Uh, we just talked about the reforging of uh, Narsil into Endural last week, so that's gonna, that was uh, that was great. And now, on the subject of swords, uh, we're going to get Sting this week. So, uh, good times. But first, uh, quick announcements. First of all, uh, we had Baymoot this past weekend, which was awesome. Uh, I saw, yeah, there's Jordan there. Jordan, it was uh, great uh, uh, to have your contributions there uh, during uh, Baymoot and several others as well. Mr. Biga as well. Great to meet you. Um, uh, really, uh, uh, really fun time. This is our last regional moot of the year. Uh, so our fall uh, moot season uh, is done. Looking forward to spring moot season, uh, which will begin in January or February. Our plans for SoCal moot have kind of hit some bumps in the road. Um, so we're probably going to end up pushing that back. We're thinking of maybe January, but we're not sure that's going to be able to happen now. Um, if there's anybody who would be interested in helping to organize, what we really need is uh, some more boots on the ground in Southern California, anywhere, frankly, in Southern California. Um, so if you're interested in helping, uh, let us know. Info at signumu.org. Let us know you'd be interested and we can maybe talk about it. But um, so SoCal Moot's a little up in the air. Text moot definitely happening. Um, that's uh, that's going to be pro that's the the one that is definitely uh, the the next one that's definite. Let me say it that way. Uh, that one's in early February. Going to be down in Austin. Um, so that's going to be really fun. Plus, we're doing uh, we we have uh, we have five moots uh, planned for the spring. Text moot. Magnolia Moot, uh, which we're looking down in one of the Carolinas. Uh, we're looking at Buckeye Moot out in Ohio. Uh, we're looking at Sunshine Moot down in Florida, and uh, and of course our uh, our new Mountain West one in Salt Lake City, which it's really hard for me not to call Ute Moot. Uh, but I don't, I don't think we've officially decided on the name for that one yet. Uh, but um, anyway, so. It's uh, it's been uh, it's been super cool. I, the, so our fall moots were fantastic. Looking forward to more moots in the spring, uh, and then of course building up towards uh, myth moot. That's actually probably the next one uh, that you're going to uh, uh, that you're going to hear from uh, hear from me about. Um, I don't think we have a date for Ute moot yet, uh, Evil Doctor Cannon, but I think we're working on that. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. <clears throat> 
that's uh, that's that's where we're headed with our moots. It's fantastic. Now, I've been telling you also about our space program. And of course, we just had a, a big milestone in our space program. Um, I mentioned before that the way that we're running our space program is that we're, we're, we're sort of putting out there, we're offering a bunch of our space modules, and then we let people choose, basically. You know, we have people buy tokens, and then they choose what they choose. And based on what they want to do, those are the ones that we run. So we have our confirmed modules uh, for December. Um, I just wanted to mention what those are because they're awesome. Advanced Old English Readings and Poetry, Creative Writing Workshop, Translation Techniques for Beginning Latin Students, J.R.R. Tolkien's Letters from Father Christmas, and To Repair Arda, Tolkien's Dwarves Through Jewish Mysticism. Just to say a little bit about those things going from bottom to top. Um, we've got two, uh, two Tolkien modules uh, that are happening. A very topical uh, uh, Christmas-themed Tolkien one with the Letters from Father Christmas with Elise uh, Trudeau um, to repair Arda. This one is super cool. Um, uh, it should be really fascinating. The link between uh, Tolkien's dwarves and the Jews and Jewish tradition is something that is long established. Um, and a lot of people don't really know how to kind of talk about. Um, this module is going to be exploring one connection that people don't usually see or don't usually talk about, um, which is sort of a deeper connection between the way that Tolkien envisioned the dwarves uh, and uh, his understanding of Jewish mysticism. It's pretty cool. Um, but uh, anyway, so those are those are the two modules that are happening, the two fantasy modules that are happening. We have one beginning language classes class that is running, and that is our beginning Latin class. Uh, this is a, a very introductory class for people who are interested in learning Latin. Um, it also is going to be Christmas themed. There's going to be some Latin Christmas carols uh, and uh, 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 you know Latin Vulgate passages uh, for Christmas discussed. Um, Again, just developing translation techniques for people who are brand new to learning Latin. And then in January, we're going to be offering the first module of our Latin in a Year series, uh, where you can go through and in uh, 12 months be ready to do full Latin translations uh, of your own. Um, then we've got... Um, our creative writing workshop, uh, which is uh, an awesome resource if you want to, if you are looking for a place for support and accountability uh, to really help you to hone your craft as a writer, uh, our creative writing workshop is going to be a wonderful, wonderful space for you. And then finally, um, our advanced old English readings class. This is a, I, I, this is one of the things actually like I'm kind of low key most excited about because, okay, so there are a lot of opportunities. Like if you want to, you know, discuss fantasy books, if you want to learn languages, there's, there's resources out there, right? You know, there's things you can find, but you know what there are very, very few of? Opportunities for you to brush up and maintain languages that you've already learned, right? This is something, this is an enormously valuable thing. If you've already studied Old English, maybe you took Old English with us at Signum. Maybe you've studied it as an undergrad, you know, several years ago or, or something like that. Um, and you know, you know, Right? You've invested time, you've invested money in learning a language, but you know it, it, it goes. It fades. You lose it if you don't use it. Right, And there are very, very few places you can go, not to learn a language, but just to 
brush up on it, right? Just to keep up on it. Um, and I'm excited. We're going to be offering a series of modules uh, for people who are in this kind of state, people who have some old English and would like to develop it, would like to continue it, but most importantly, would like to keep it from fading away. Um, and that's what our advanced old English readings in poetry uh, module is going to be. Anyway, uh, so... Um, yeah, uh, Zephan is wondering, will the Jewish mysticism module ever make a reappearance? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, we know, you know, December might not necessarily work for folks. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, we're, we're, we will, that'll probably cycle around uh, sometime during the course of this coming year. So, um, anyway... These are the modules that we're offering for December. If you are interested in these, the first step with these or our January ones, if you want to be involved with that, um, the, uh, the, the thing to do, go to our space website and just buy a token. You buy a token and you can, you know, you, the way it works, it's really simple. You buy a token, you can cash that token in uh, for a module uh, anytime. They never expire. You can keep it and use it whenever you want to. And um, you can also give it away. These make really good presents. You can just buy a token, buy a couple tokens. A uh, few of you can get together and uh, go in for a whole bunch together, and then you can distribute them amongst yourselves. I don't care, um, uh, th- you know. So, and then once you once you purchase your token, then we'll get you the registration form, and we'll get you can weigh in, you can vote, you know, for future months and everything. Um, so, really. Um, uh, really fun stuff. Um, the the tokens cost the base cost for one token is one hundred and fifty dollars. Um, they go down um, if you buy like six of them at once. They only cost a hundred bucks a piece. Um, but as I say, it's uh, they last forever. Uh, so anyway, just wanted to let you know what was coming up in space. Uh, really fun stuff. So there it is. Barthram was uh, writing it all down. There you go. Um, uh, so that's it. That's the full list right there. Awesome. So as I say, these make really cool presents. Remember that our space modules, this is not just, uh, this is not like, you know, a, a standard kind of asynchronous online, uh, you know, learning experience. These are live sessions, um, where you'll be in a discussion group with other fun people, uh, you know, being led by one of our professors. So it's, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> very good. Um, let us jump back into the text. Now, as I say, having already done one, um, sword discussion, it's time for another. But first, notice what happens as a transition. In those last days, the hobbits sat together in the evening of the hall, in, in the evening, in the hall of fire. And there among many tales, they heard told in full the lay of Baron and Luthien, and the winning of the great jewel. But in the day, while Merry and Pippin were out and about, Frodo and Sam were to be found with Bilbo in his own small room. Then Bilbo would read passages from his book, which still seemed very incomplete, or scraps of his verses, or would take notes of Frodo's adventures. On the morning of the last day, Frodo was alone with Bilbo, and the old hobbit pulled out from under his bed a wooden box. He lifted the lid and fumbled inside. "'Here is your sword,' he said. "'But it was broken, you know.' I took it to keep it safe, but I've forgotten to ask if the smiths could mend it. No time now, so I thought perhaps you would care to have this, don't you know? He took from the box a small sword in an old shabby leathern scabbard. Then he drew it, and its polished and well-tended blade glittered suddenly, cold and bright. This is Sting, he said, and thrust it with little effort deep into a wooden beam. Take it if you like. I shan't want it again, I expect. Frodo accepted it gratefully. 
All right. Um, yeah, it, Valora, this does sound like Tolkien reading his notes back to his sons or friends, doesn't it? Um, okay. Let's start at the beginning this time, not at the end. Um, the transition into this last meeting, which starts with learning something... Um, starts with learning something about um, what they've been doing, right? Um, and I, I'm going to presume, I mean, it says in those last days the hobbits sat together. We know they're the last days, they're last days in Rivendell, right? Because Elrond has just said in seven days the company must depart. So in those last days the hobbits sat together in the evening in the Hall of Fire. Um, it's possible, of course, to read this as saying they have just started doing this, right? That, like, you know, they didn't spend any time at all in the Hall of Fire before, and now they're like, oh man, we better do some Hall of Fire cramming before we leave. I find that myself rather hard to believe. Um, but it is interesting. So I, I, my suspicion is that they've been spending some time intermittently in the Hall of Fire uh, for most of the time they've been there. Um, but I think it's important that we are told this right now, right? Um, uh, whether or not this is the first time that it has happened, um, it is a, uh, an appropriate moment uh, for us to be told about it, right? Um, what is emphasized is that they are listening to many tales, right? Um, before they set out on their adventure, before they begin or continue their tale, they are taking in the stories of the Elder Days that they can hear in the House of Elrond, and of course, in particular, is singled out in, that they heard told in full the Lay of Baron and Luthien and the winning of the Great Jewel, just as Aragorn promised that they would heard it, hear it told, right, by the one who knows it best, when they got to Rivendell. Um, yeah, Matt, I'm also thinking it might be safer to list the days in which uh, Sam was not spending his evenings in the Hall of Fire. That seems very, very likely to me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, listening to tales and relaxing is what the hobbits are doing to prepare. Yes, yes, exactly. In part, in part, I think. Um, but... Um, but... I think that there. I would identify three different kind of layers that are happening in this story. Maybe two. The last two that I'm thinking of might be kind of closely related together. But if you look at the shape of this passage, this you know this passage that I have here, we start off with the hobbits listening to the old tales, especially the tale The Lay of Baron and Luthien and the Winning of the Great Jewel. And then, of course, we get before the end of that paragraph, Bilbo reading passages from his book, right, which is still very incomplete. So we've got Bilbo telling this, so we've got stories from the ancient past. Then we've got stories from the recent past, story from Bilbo's ancient past, right, his adventure and the things that he has seen and learned. Right. Both um, his book telling his own story. Right. Uh, the, the, his there and back again story, but also scraps of verses, meaning 
on the one on the one hand, it's tempting to just hear that as simply, you know, sharing the poems he's in the middle of writing, right? But but I think there's more to it than that as well. Um, we will see. He's not said this yet, but we'll see him say fairly soon to Frodo that he wants Frodo to bring back any new songs um, or poems that he hears in his journey. Right. So I think that the scraps of his verses, yes, it's Bilbo's poetry. Um, but but again, I think this is also kind of part of that Bilbo sharing the tales that he has encountered, the tales and the songs that he has collected right during his life. And some of his own songs, of course, are are reactions to that. I mean, if we go back to the song of his that we've already heard, think of the two Bilbo poems, the two comparatively recent Bilbo compositions that we have been treated to um, in the last few chapters. The Arundel poem, of course, but also the um, Seek for the, the, not the Seek for the Sword that was broken. That was not composed by Bilbo. Um, his Aragorn poem, right? The, the, the verses that go with Aragorn's name. Um, uh, why am I blanking on the first line of that poem? I cannot even come up with the first line of that poem. Good grief. Um, uh, all that is golden like glitter. Thank you. Good grief. Boy. Anyway, yes. So those are the two recent, comparatively recent Bilbo poems that we've heard. But even those, in those we can see, this is not Bilbo, like, I don't know, like, <sighs> merely writing occasional poetry or something like that, right? Um, what we're getting is him processing, him telling, him retelling. I mean, we got in the the uh, Arendil poem, him taking and doing his own version of the legend of Arendil, right? Which, of course, Aragorn backed slowly away from when Bilbo asked for his help. Um, and of course, after Aragorn told him about himself, right, and Bilbo first learned the great story that his friend Aragorn is a part of, right, um, he processed that in another poem as well. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Matt. Um, uh, there's a part of Bilbo the folklorist that is showing up. Bilbo as a Grimm or a Lonrot. Yeah, Lonrot being the guy who collected uh, the Kalevala. Uh, songs, um, or the Brothers Grimm collecting the uh, the the you know the stories for for their collection. Um, that's exactly that's exactly the kind of thing. Now, Bruinier, we do also have when winter first begins to bite, and it makes me wonder about it. You know what I mean? Um, we talked about where that might have come from in the past. How it kind of you know the way it's sort of addressed to Sam, um, you know, makes it almost sound like a kind of. Um, you know, sort of cautionary, uh, you know, verse that was perhaps even used in Sam's lessons back in the day. But I also suspect, Bruinier, it's very possible, right, that he would have collected that from somewhere, right, or adapted it from somewhere. I'm not sure that those two processes are necessarily different for Bilbo, right? I mean, one of the things that we've already seen evidence of, and here I'm thinking of the Gilgalad poem, which Sam recites, and remember, it surprises Strider, right? Aragorn doesn't, you know, he says, Bilbo must have translated it. I never knew that, right? Um, so this 
Bilbo is clearly, in some ways, seeing himself as uh, kind of taking advantage of the opportunity to to collect stories, to render them into Hobbit-appropriate verse, both in terms of actually translating from Elvish uh, into Westron, um, but as we saw with the Gilgalad verse, more than merely translating, right? Adapting to what seemed, you know, according to our theory at the time, um, even, you know, uh, uninstructional juvenile uh, version of the story. Um, yeah, compiler of rhymes of lore. That's a totally legitimate thing, Hrothgar. Absolutely. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Bjorning in Exile says, I think the reason Elrond tolerates Bilbo's cheek is because Bilbo is a recorder of history. The elves, being immortal, do not need to write things down, and their stories will be lost to the world, to Middle-earth, without Bilbo and Tolkien. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that the elves uh, value what Bilbo is doing. At the very least, they are coming to understand Bilbo. You know, they, they, they understand the whole mortality issue well enough to know that um, having somebody who can cast stories into verse, right? Who can um, be... The transmitter who can help to be the memory right for future generations um, that's something that was appreciated by the elves even before the fading times right um, that of course is the root of Tolkien's entire mythology back to the book of lost tales the core story of with right I mean the very first cycle of stories you know those stories which eventually are developed into the Silmarillion material Tolkien's very first you know, major uh, uh, storytelling undertaking was exactly that kind of story where a human goes and stays with the elves in a very, uh, you know, in, 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 a, in a position not the same as Bilbo, but not unlike him. One mortal, you know, wandering in, visiting, being hosted there, um, hearing the stories and writing versions of them in his own language that he can bring home and, uh, and circulate. Um, and yes, Bard, exactly. Bilbo is ensuring that even if they all go west, there will never be a world without elves. Exactly. And that's why I think the fact that, again, as I was saying, even before the fading time, this was something that was appreciated, that was valued, uh, I think, by the elves. Um, and now the more so, right? As they are preparing to depart, they know one way or the other, the time of the elves is drawing to an end, right? Um, hopefully it will draw to a peaceful end and they can leave Middle-earth in peace. Um, otherwise it will end in a horrible end with the shadow descending over Middle-earth. But either way, the time of the elves is ending. And so, yes, I think that they do appreciate Bilbo's role. Um, and of course, we know that this is exactly what is going to, um, this is exactly what is going to happen with the Red Book. This very book that Bilbo is reading passages from, right? This very incomplete book that Bilbo is reading passages from is going to be the text which ultimately is going to come down through many copies and versions to us. And that is, of course, what we're reading. And Evil Dr. Cannon, you're exactly right that Tolkien is essentially validating his own activity through Elrond's approval of Bilbo's writings. Um, yes, yes. Uh, or to say the same thing another way around... 
um, that Bilbo or that Tolkien is positioning himself in a long tradition going back to Bilbo, right? That he is doing for Bilbo's writings what uh, what Bilbo was doing for the Elvish lore, right? Kurtzimus wonders how many elves can read and write. Um, the minority, the minority. Reading and writing is not um, a necessary skill among the elves, um, and nor even a valued skill among many of the elves. Um, that's not any longer universally true. Um, I mean, as... Uh, you know, once uh, things started to really go south in the wars of Beleriand, the need to write things down um, became a little bit more obvious, which is one reason why I think we can get, um, uh, you know, we get the figure of Pengalod, the scribe of Gondolin, right? Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, no, they, they were not big into literacy. Um I agree. Of all oral tradition cultures, elves are the most efficient. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yes, uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's almost um, almost theoretically idealized. They're, they are an almost theoretically idealized oral uh, oral uh, culture, right? Um, yes. Now, we elves did make letters, Kurtzimus, and of course, we can see why they made letters, right? Um, not for writing narratives in, for writing poems in, necessarily. Um, but, of course, the primary use that elves have for letters is carving on things, right? The runes that they make. Um, we saw all the elf runes that were written on the blade of Enduril, right? Or for writing on doors, Kurtzimus. Yet another role, right? Um, that is, uh, runes, written words, are powerful, um, um, they are a way of embodying, right? As far as we can see, embodying the will of the maker uh, and kind of anchoring it in that physical object. I, I mean, as far as we can tell, that's kind of what runes, what runes do, right? But again, that's very different from what we normally mean when we say, are they literate? Can they read and write? Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Fire letters on rings are a good illustration. I, again, obviously we know not done by the elves themselves, but that's the kind of thing. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, Bard. The wor words are power, and to imbue, imbue an object with power, you need to get the words on it. Yeah, that um, that seems to be... I don't know if we could say that is generally true, like that is always true, Um but it certainly does seem to be a very um, uh, a very standard technique. But again, very different from just I'm going to write a book, right? I'm going to write a history or something like that. Um, and yes, evil Doctor Cannon. As far as we understand, Elvish memories are sufficiently uh, retentive uh, to hold on to accurate information for centuries. Um, yes, though, evil Doctor Cannon did also. Um, uh, helps to explain why um, the Hall of Fire is fairly repetitive. Right? Um, Bilbo even says as they're leaving and Frodo is listening to them singing the Elbereth Gilthoniel song, um, remember he says they will sing that and many other songs of the Blessed Realm many times tonight, right? Um, so, 
so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think they rehearse a lot. Um, I don't think, but also remember the other thing to remember evil Dr. Cannon is that, uh, um, the other thing to remember is that Elvish memory is different in quality as well. Right. Not just in kind of quantity. Um, it's not just about how long can they retain things and how well can they retain things. Their experience with memory is fundamentally different from ours. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I agree, Bjorning in Exile, we do, see, there are books of lore, right? Um, uh, there is a reference to books of lore. Um, books of lore do exist. Again, that, that became, um, I'm not saying elves never write anything down. That became trendy when all the elves started dying in the wars with Morgoth. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, um, it, it, it did kind of catch on. Uh, as the first age continued, um, but um, but it definitely um, it definitely is. And Barthram, I'm not really sure exactly how it works in that way. It's asking. It's it's really um, uh, hard to grasp how someone could have thousands of years of memories. Like, do they remember what they had for breakfast 300 years ago? Well, we're not really sure, right? We're not really sure. Um, exactly how it works. Like, that is, if they're remembering it in that kind of a linear and episodic way, I'm not sure it would necessarily be that way, exactly. Um, but again, it's just that it doesn't work the same way that we like, We don't have access to the past. Um, yeah. Elvish memories are just different. Um, I think I'm just going to leave it there for now, because we don't have the data, certainly in this passage, to draw any conclusions about that. We'll get a little bit more later on. Um, but of course, I think we're going to end up talking about this a good deal more in our Nature of Middle-Earth discussions on Wednesday nights, too. So uh, maybe we'll just kind of hang out for that a little bit. Yeah, Kurtzman, that's what I thought. I thought the Nature of Middle-Earth goes into this. I've not been reading ahead. I'm sticking with, uh, um, I'm sticking with where we've been. But... Um, uh, but I did look at the table of contents, so I thought I remembered something about that. Um, anyway, anyway. Um, okay, so let's see. Uh, yeah, yeah. Numenor had many books of lore. Exactly. Right. Well, because they're human, so certainly. Um, and uh, I would suspect that Elrond has been assiduously collecting all of the books of lore and probably commissioning some as well. I bet you that books are made in Elrond's house um, because Elrond he is the greatest of lore. If you think about it there is a sense in which Aragorn is going to become Elrond's heir right? Elrond's job his primary job from the beginning, and from the beginning I mean from the beginning of Tolkien's imagination, right? Like, what the character of Elrond meant from the very first time the character of Elrond ever appeared in Tolkien's imagination. He was the transition. He was the one from the earlier age that remained into the later ages in Middle-earth, keeping alive the memory of the older days, 
right? Um, he was the link, the living link back to the Elder Days, even though he wasn't there for a huge percentage of the Elder Days. Nevertheless, he, he's the bridge. He's the bridge between the, within the context of, you know, what Sam and Frodo would call the modern world, right, from their world back into the ancient days. And, of course, Aragorn is going to self-consciously um, fill that same role. Right. Um, why not Kelborn who takes over his house, Jordan? Well, you know, because um, uh, uh, Kelborn's just a seat warmer, right? Uh, I mean, that is, he's not taking up that mantle. Um, he's just vacationing before he leaves. I don't want, I'm not trying to diss Kelborn. I'm always dissing Kelborn. And I, 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 I just mean, this is not his job moving forward. Right. Kelleborn has no brief for the fourth age. He sticks around into the fourth age for a bit. Um, and I would like to think that he contemplate that, that he 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 accomplishes something significant. Right. I don't know what it was, but I'd like to think that he accomplishes something. I mean, in his time in Rivendell. Right. Um, I think that he doesn't go there for no reason. I'm not sure what the reason is, but I don't think he goes there for no reason. However, Aragorn is the one who, like Elrond before him, is that living link, right? That living link back to, you know, he's like the last king of the Elder Days, right? You know, he is um, he is that bridge. Um, and he will later on explicitly talk, Aragorn will explicitly talk about the importance of keeping alive the memory of the times that have been in the past. Um, but um, anyway, so, but yes, but as I say, this, this has been Elrond's job for millennia at this point. Um, so is he writing stuff down now? Yeah. Is he collecting books? Yeah. Yeah, he definitely is. Um, and so therefore we can see Bilbo. Now, Bilbo isn't exactly, you know, he's not in that position. He's not, um, uh, he's, you know, Aragorn is the one who is really taking on, uh, kind of inheriting that same role that Elrond had, or a parallel role at least to it. Uh, yeah, parallel, but lesser, as is almost always the pattern in Tolkien, right? Um, you can almost see Aragorn as like a type of Elrond, right? Uh, lesser uh, in the, uh, in the you know, further on down the road. But Bilbo is part of Elrond's kind of literary and cultural project. Um, and I think that we can begin to see perhaps why Elrond is keen to suffer Bilbo's cheek, right? Um, it might take a certain amount of cheek to make verses about Eärendil in the house of Elrond, but at the same time, Elrond would want that to happen, right? He would want there to be Right, you know, verses about Arendil that are passed down among the halflings and among, you know, the men of the fourth age. Right, he, um, you know, it might be hard to talk about, you know, his uh, father who can never return um, in his house, um, but he certainly want his father to be um, forgotten. Right. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, Turambara, I wonder. Because you're right. 
the elves probably, if they're generating lots and lots of texts, if the goal now, if the point, right, if what they're looking towards is the transmission of lore from the elves to mortals, right, then they would be more interested in collecting. And frankly, they would be more interested in encouraging people like Bilbo um, and Sam, right, down the road, than they would be in writing their own books. Because the books that the elves would write might not help the mortals very much, right? And they might not be well-suited uh, to mortal minds, perhaps. Um... But um, but yeah, Bjorning and Exile, I exactly agree. I think there's a, uh, a, a a good reason why they regard Bilbo so highly. Absolutely. Um, somebody was asking before, do the elves think that Bilbo is a good poet? Um, well, I don't know in one sense, right? You know, that is, uh, is Bilbo... Uh, is Bilbo a skilled poet in ways that the elves respect? Um... I'm sure. I am sure. Yeah, well, look, there's no question that the stories that Bilbo tells and the songs that he sings are, you can't even compare them to Elvish songs, right? Um, It's like, uh, I don't know what it's like. It's like, having a film, right, making a film, and then have somebody else retell the story, except they have no video projector or anything, right? All they can do is hum the score. And they might be very good at humming the score, right? And it it conveys something, right? Uh, but... It, it's not the whole story. I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to come up with a parallel of the way in which, again, not only are elvish memories different, but elvish art is different, right? For elves to tell a story, they are remember the experience that Frodo had in the Hall of Fire, um, you know, a couple chapters ago. Um uh it's it's um it's a full immersive sensory experience listening to elvish tales and poetry um and uh so another line that occurs to me um we were talking a lot about weef by niggle at uh baymouth this past weekend uh Alyssa house thomas was uh uh giving a wonderful and challenging reflection on leaf by niggle and i um Remember when at the end of Leaf by Niggle, near the end of Leaf by Niggle, um, actually near the very end of it, when Parrish and Niggle are speaking with the shepherd, the guide, right, who's come to uh, help Niggle move on, um, you know, the angelic figure. And uh, there's that moment, remember, when Parrish looks around at the tree and the landscape, right, and says, did you think of all this, Niggle? Right? He has that moment where he's like, is this your art? You did all this? Right? Um, and the guide, the shepherd, says, you, um, uh, refers back to Niggle's painting 
back in the old days, right? And he says he had only got paint and canvas then, right? Um, you know, the way in which Niggles paint and canvas, as wonderful as Niggles' leaves were, right? Um, he's, he, he, he had only got paint and canvas, right? But later on, um, you know, in Niggles' parish, uh, it becomes real. You can lie under Niggles' tree and experience it, right? And, and again, as far as we can, as far as we can tell, um, as far as we can tell, there's something like that kind of a difference between elvish art and mortal art, right? Um, so it's not like they can't put it on the elvish scale, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, right. So I don't think it's really a question that can be answered. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why Lindir is hesitant to put forth any guesses and stuff, because this whole idea of mortal verse, you know, which is just a series of spoken syllables, and that's pretty much it, right, is still kind of weird to him, right? Um, it is an art form that he's still getting adjusted to. I mean, after all, in Lindir's world, Bilbo just arrived a couple months ago. So, you know, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, praise Moyer. I like the real Narnia and the shadow Narnia. Yes, exactly. Much like that. Much like that. Um, and again, it's still only art, right? So there is still a reality which is above and beyond that, right? That's still not the primary world. It's still building a secondary world. But again, it's building it in all these different dimensions. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I... Um, uh, so I... Th I trying to retrace my mental steps here where how I got to talking about this but thinking about Bilbo and his book and his scraps of verses and being encouraged by Elrond and what Elrond is doing and the role that that he's playing I mean I would say that the um, the most there is a sense perhaps in which Bilbo is an extremely important member of Elrond's household right now, right? Um, on the one hand, it might seem like Bilbo is, uh, you know, receiving great, you know, charity on the part of uh, Elrond, that Elrond is generously giving Bilbo a, a place, to, you know, a wonderful place to retire to, uh, right, and offering him, you know, house space for many years. Um, but... Uh, you can see there is a sense, perhaps, in which Bilbo is one of the most important people in Elrond's household, right? Um, and that they recognize and value this. Um, so, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I apologize. My, I have uh, my wife's phone, which I can't turn off. Um, so, anyway... Um, yeah, good. He's a resident historian, resident poet laureate. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And yes, I do agree with you. Um, uh, several people have been talking about him being an honored guest. Yeah, we see him being an honored guest. Like we have plenty of evidence um, that they see him that way, that he, they're not just humoring him, right? They're not, I mean, Bilbo says that, right? He thinks that they sing his song sometimes just to please him, right? Um, but I, I wonder. I'm not sure that's actually true. It's a, a characteristically kind of humble thing for Bilbo to say, but I don't think it's actually true. I, I wonder if we can begin to, to, to see or to imagine other reasons that they have for singing some of Bilbo's songs at the Hall of Fire, right? He doesn't consider them really, um, you know, worthy of Rivendell, but um, this, is, um, uh, this is a really important um, thing for them to try to learn, right? To try to kind of get their own heads around, in a sense. Um, yeah. And yeah, Bjorn and Exile, you're right. The Bilbo's uh, position might be uh, as close as a, uh, a writer like uh, like him is likely to get to a public pension, right? Uh, which Miggle would like, but doesn't receive. Um, yeah, I, Brandon, I absolutely agree that when he says the elves are humoring him, he probably does not have an actually accurate picture of what the elves think of him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I wonder. JJ thinks that uh, Bilbo feels like, uh, might feel like Pippin being asked to sing before Denethor. Uh, yeah, in, in some ways, for sure. In some ways, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. Do the elves have an accurate picture of his role? Kurtzimus is wondering. I think perhaps perhaps. But yeah, Matt, that's the other thing that I was thinking of. I, mean, I don't know if all of them do, Kurtzimus, but I, I, I would bet you that Elrond does. And I think that Aragorn does, too. Um, but Matt says, I suspect the elves are as delighted by seeing the world through hobbit eyes as the Valar are at seeing the world through the children's eyes. Yes. Yes. Um, Bilbo's thinking of it in terms of poetic quality, right? That his... Uh, his, he knows his poems aren't really up to Rivendell's standard, but that's, again, that's, that's not the point. I think that we have every reason to think that the elves take pure delight in getting inside Bilbo's perspective, right? Um, Lindir might protest that mortals have not been his study, right? And yet, his friendship with Bilbo... Um, suggests that it's a study he has taken up now, right? Um, and that he is delighting to learn more about his friend uh, Bilbo. Um, anyway, um, okay. There was more I wanted to talk about in that first paragraph. Oh, um, the winning of the great jewel. Someone was asking before why... Um, um, why it's called the Great Jewel. Um, I think, frankly, he calls it the Great Jewel because remember the world Silmaril isn't, the word Silmaril is not going to be familiar to anybody, right? I mean, no one had heard of the Silmarils. Um, the word Silmaril is going to be used later on, right? I mean, it's, it's going to make an appearance uh, in the Lord of the Rings, but he's certainly not going to 
rely on that, right? Um, so the winning of the great jewel. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, GDC says this is clearly one of the top three jewels. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely top three. Um, but um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think. Um, What's interesting to me about that is that the lay of Baron and Luthien and the winning of the great jewel. We're being told that the hobbits are hearing the whole story. But we're not hearing the whole story here, right? We still have to make do with the version of the story that Aragorn gave to us, first in verse and then in prose, after he finished his song, right? Um, so we still don't know the whole story. Um, but the lay of Baron and Luthien and the winning of the great jewel does convey in one sentence uh, a great deal of it, right? The pairing of Baron and Luthien together and then their winning of the great jewel. Um, I think he doesn't want this just to sound like the title of a book that we haven't read, right? Um, it is a reminder of the story that we've heard a part of, um, and we'll have to remember to imagine the rest of, or hope that the publishers give in and let him publish the Silmarillion. Um, uh, yeah, Kendall thinks it's a jab at the publisher for not taking up the Silmarillion. Um, Kendall, I am not... I do not rule out the fact that when Tolkien wrote that sentence, he was, um, uh, that part of his mind was thinking about uh, uh, drumming up interest in his publisher, right? Surely they'll want, him, they'll want this after this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, as I think it's, it's, uh, if it were just like, uh, you know, Baron and Luthien and the winning of the Silmaril, there's a, there's a level of, like, the name of the Silmaril, which is unfamiliar to us. Even if it's used uh, before, it's, uh, it's, it's, un, it's unknown to us in general. Um, and so, it wouldn't, it, again, it would only have the force of the title of a story that you're not going to hear, right? Um, uh, you know, the title of a story that you don't know, and this is a little bit different. Um, yeah, Matt, exactly. I think he's sneaking in an elevator pitch is exactly one of the things that's happening here. Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, and yes, um, Eruahil, I agree. The Great Jewel also calls to mind the talk of the Great Ring and the needful story of victory against the odds, hope against hope. That's really great. Um, you're right. The Great Ring is a phrase that was used several times back in the Council of Elrond, right? And so inviting the parallel between the Great Jewel and the Great Ring, right? Though, of course, we have the losing of the Great Ring and the winning of the Great Jewel. So we have a, a little bit of anti-parallel uh, uh, um, going on right there as well. Um, but yeah, I like that. Um, we will be explicitly told later on, right, uh, to continue thinking more about the relationship between their story on the one hand and the lay of Baron and Luthien and the winning of the Great Jewel on the other hand, right? That parallel will be drawn for us even more explicitly later on. Um, but here, 
in this moment, as I was saying, I think it's significant that we are being told about their evenings in the Hall of Fire now, right? Between the formation of the company and the departure, right as they are in those last days, as they are preparing to set out. Um, because it's a kind of contextualization, right? A kind of a contextualization of the quest that they are about to be entering on. Um, that uh, we have Baron and Luthien and the winning of the Great Jewel and their quest, but there's also something in between, right? I said there were kind of three levels, right? The story that they are about to enact, right? The story that they are going to continue by um, starting their journey south um, does is connected back to the story of Baron and Luthien and the winning of the Great Jewel. But there's another one in between, right? Um, uh, and the other one in between is Bilbo's story, right? The other story that's in his still very incomplete book. Um, the story of his adventure, the story of the Hobbit. Um, and, of course, we see him taking notes of Frodo's adventures, uh, being reminded... And that's, of course... You know, all three levels are evidenced there in that paragraph, right? The ancient stories, the great tale. Um, Bilbo's book full of his own writings and his own stories. And notes towards the writing down of Frodo's adventures, right? The story which is not yet complete and which is in some ways only really beginning, right? Um we'll come back to the way in which Bilbo's story kind of sits in between those two things. One last question I want to ask before we leave that first paragraph. What do we think Merry and Pippin were doing? Merry and Pippin were out and about, right? Um, while Frodo and Sam were to be found with Bilbo in his own small room. What were they up to? Birds nesting, Emily thinks. Yeah, yeah, quite likely. Quite likely. Um... Uh, doing some tra-la-la-lolly, right? Yeah, yeah. Finding a new walking stick, very possibly, right? Off losing the scepter of Anuinus. For those of you who don't know, it's a it's an adorable quest in um, uh, in in the Lord of the Rings Online. Um, when there's there's this one point where you can go and you're and there's a little embarrassing problem um elrond has like misplaced the scepter of Anuminus. he's like um it's missing i don't know where it is and it turns out that like pippin borrowed it and used it as a walking stick not knowing what it was um uh it's an adorable uh quest line um yeah we have no idea <laughs> raiding elrond's crops <laughs> i like that suggestion um um yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, right? Not looking at maps in Pippin's case, right, uh, Kendall? Right, absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, the juxtaposition between Mary and Pippin being out and actively doing stuff, right, um, while Frodo and Sam are inside with Bilbo in his own small room, right? There's this, uh, there's this kind of family sense to it, right? Um, you know, Merry and Pippin are off. And this is, I can't help but think of um, the very end, right? Um, think of Sam and Merry and Pippin going home together and 
then Sam turns off to go to Bag End and Mary and Pippin go off, you know, into the night already singing again together, right? Um, uh, so, yeah, I think that there's this this sense of the two of them, um, you know, the two of them are like the da- the great dashing travelers. Think of the difference that's going to be between Merry and Pippin and how they connect to the rest of the Shire and how Frodo and Sam connect to it after they return home, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's... Um, yeah, there's probably exploration. I wonder, uh, you know, Matt's wondering if maybe they're taking up fencing. Like, are they actually learning? Uh, that was actually a scene I really liked in the movies. Remember the scene when Boromir is teaching Merry and Pippin to fight? Um, uh, I like that. Um, you know, are they, uh, are they, are they thinking about that now? Right, fighting had never before occurred to any of them as something that might be happening on their journey. But I bet they're thinking about it now. Um, I think that's, uh, I think that's entirely possible. Anyway, um, but then we have the morning of the last day. Frodo was alone with Bilbo. Okay, no, wait. On the morning of the last day, Frodo was alone with Bilbo. So I don't think this means, I think I would put a comma there after day, Right. So Frodo was alone with Bilbo on the morning of the last day. So this is the day before they leave. I don't think this means the last day in which Frodo was alone with Bilbo. I think this must be the actual last day, right? Um, Yes, yes. Um, So on the morning of the last day, Frodo was alone with Bilbo. And the old hobbit pulled out from under his bed a wooden box. So first of all, notice the um, context, right? Yeah, you're right, Mad Violinist. It probably is Christmas morning. The gift giving is probably, in fact, happening on Christmas morning. Um, it is the it's the last day. It's not the day before. It's the last day, right? So this is presumably the morning of September 25th um, that they are, in fact, having this. Um, conversation, having this exchange. The first um, did I say November? December. December 25th. Yes. Um, Yes. Christmas morning. Bilbo and Frodo. Um, Notice the emphasis on aloneness. Right? Um, On their solitude. Sam is often with them, but Sam isn't there on this day. Right? Sam's got other stuff to do. He's packing and stuff, probably. Right, we see Sam still going through his inventory, um, and realizing he's forgotten rope. Right, what well, we'll see that in a little bit. Sam is probably busy on practical things. Right, exactly, Arnaz. He's busy not packing rope, exactly. Um, and uh, Frodo is alone with Bilbo. But I think that's an important thing to notice at the beginning of this scene. This is a very private scene. Um, Bilbo is very embarrassed, right? He's very embarrassed off and on throughout this. No, look how much he stumbles as he talks about this. He's he's fumbling inside the box, right? Um, look at how his speech goes. Here is your sword, but it was broken, you know. I took it to keep it safe, but I've forgotten to ask if the smiths could mend it. 
No time now, so I thought perhaps you would care to have this, don't you know? Right? Um, his uh, stumbling over this act of generosity that he's doing, right, um, shows that he's embarrassed, right? That he's embarrassed, that he feels very shy about this. You know, he is not, um, he is doing the absolute opposite of making a big fanfare of giving gifts to Frodo, right? Um, this is about as far from, like, you know, Hrothgar's gift seat as can possibly be, right? The kind of big formal ceremony where the gift is given in full sight of all and, you know, the gift, the giving of the gift confers great honor upon the giver and all that kind of thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And Nancy, I totally agree. Um, I think he's being completely disingenuous there. He didn't forget to ask if the Smiths could mend it. I don't think he ever had any intention of getting Frodo's sword mended. Indeed, I would almost be willing to say um, that he uh, kept it, he took it to keep it safe in order to make sure nobody asked the Smiths to mend it, right? I think he took it and he hid it. Um, yeah, I'm not saying he'd like lied about it or didn't tell anybody else where it was necessarily. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think that he is, um, has definitely deliberately sabotaged any opportunity to remake, uh, Bilbo's, uh, sword. He did keep it secret and safe from his Boojum. You're, you're right about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, it is especially interesting. Uh, Murina Fey, uh, as you say, um, it is Frodo's own version of Narsil, right? Um, his, uh, you know, this is, uh, except it's not like that, right? Instead of seek for the sword that was broken, it was forget about the sword that was broken, right? Um, uh, for, for, Forget about the sword that was broken. Um, you know, in Bilbo's footlocker, it hides. Um, but um, it's pretty conspicuous in the context of having just looked at the reforging of Anduril. You would think the reforging of Frodo's sword would be kind of a nice touch, right? I mean, wouldn't that be kind of a nice touch? Wouldn't it be kind of nice to um, uh, have, like, just as... Aragorn's sword is reforged uh, by Elvish Smiths. So too Frodo's sword. I mean, apparently the Elvish Smith just did that, right? So they didn't need to give him a whole lot of warning uh, in order to do this. But um, uh, but anyway, um, he uh, uh, that parallelism, right? The parallelism of Frodo having a reforged sword it's the wrong look. We talked about the ways in which Aragorn's reforged sword is perfect, right? The ways in which it fits him, his role, his job, right? You know, all these things. Um, his history, his future, uh, it is the perfect symbol of Aragorn, right? And remember, there's this identity, near identity, right? Seek for the sword that was broken, kind of seems to mean find Aragorn, right? Um, uh, 
you know, one way to paraphrase at least part of that poem from Faramir's Dream is give Aragorn the green light. It's time. Right? So, yeah. So, it's totally perfect for him, but it's not perfect for Frodo. Right? Frodo is, symbolically speaking, Bilbo is spot on. Right? Um, The Barrow Blade reforged, so the sword of uh, downfallen westerness, right? Um, From the wars with the Witch King of Angmar, um, reforged into a new weapon against the Witch King and the evil of Morgul. No, that's not Frodo's job at all, right? That's not at all Frodo's job. Instead, Bilbo has it exactly right. Um, He should care to have this. A small sword in an old shabby weathered scabbard. Then he drew it, and its polished and well-tended blade glittered suddenly cold and bright. This is Sting, he said, and thrust it with little effort deep into a wooden beam, thus emphasizing on the one hand that it is um, uh, an upgrade from his old sword, right? Um, and I think I'd, um, JJ, I think I saw you before uh, saying about how Elrond is totally going to add that to the bill, right? Uh, now we got, we've got to fix beams right in the room. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, anyhow, what's the significance here, right? How is this a more fitting moment, a more fitting gesture, um, a more fitting, you know, weapon for Frodo to have. This is where we come back to that text in the middle, right? And we've got the ancient world in the lay of Baron and Luthien and the winning of the great jewel. We have the future story that is now unfolding, right? The uh, notes on Frodo of Frodo's adventures, But in between them, we have Bilbo's story, The Hobbit. Sting, so named within the context of, you know, which name itself brings up memories of fighting spiders, right? Uh, In Mirkwood, um, of Bilbo's luck during his adventure, right? Of the significant role that he played, as certainly that was the the naming of Sting. Sting is named at a really important moment, right? Sting is named at a turning point in Bilbo's career. The finding of the ring was a very big turning point, of course, but the killing of the spider, alone and unaided, is a major moment in Bilbo's career. And he names the sword at that moment, right, for that reason. He has he's no longer Bilbo Baggins, right? He is now the stinging fly. Um, he has a completely different relationship with this adventure and the world around him. And, of course, as I'm uh, alluding back to uh, in my subtitle here, uh, which was to replace your walking stick, um, I'm remembering chapter one of The Hobbit. Remember that first inclination towards adventure 
that Bilbo had um, when he was listening to the dwarves' song at the end of chapter one of The Hobbit um, was that imagination of wearing a sword instead of a walking stick, right? Um, he liked to go out on walks. Uh, he was not unused to journeying in that way, right? But there's a big difference between going out on your favorite walks. Even if they're long walks, they might be multi-day walks, right, that he's doing. Um, but there's a big difference when you go out uh, girt with a sword instead of a walking stick. And that is something that um, Bilbo, I think, is sort of recalling here, right? Frodo is now in that moment um, where he is being given Sting, where he is stepping into that role. Not the same identity that Bilbo established for himself when he named Sting. Um, it's not, you know, quite as continuous as that, right? But um, we saw the transformation, right? When Bilbo the Hobbit, um, I, I mean, we saw it during the course of The Hobbit, right? When Bilbo the Hobbit is swept into this adventure that he did not anticipate or see coming and ends up you know, doing and saying things altogether unexpected, right? And we see, I wonder if he himself now reflects back on his story quite differently. We'll remember the last words of Gandalf to Bilbo at the end of The Hobbit, right? Um, about him being only a, a little fellow in, in, in a wide world, right? Um, and how all of his adventures and escapes weren't arranged for his sole benefit. Um, because, of course, there are sort of two levels of things that we can see there, right? One, Bilbo understanding that he was only one part of a bigger story, but also, at the same time, Bilbo realizing that it was not for his benefit, right? That his own story was part of, was in fact part of a bigger story. So it kind of goes both ways in that way, right? Um, there's more than just your story happening, but your story is part of that big story. And, of course... Frodo knows these things, right? And yet Bilbo is here explicitly connecting the two of them together. And I cannot help but think... Now, we've had this already, right? Um, we've had this from back in the Shadow of the Past, right? Um, when Bilbo has... Been, uh, when Frodo has been thinking about his adventure and about his journey in terms of or in relationship to... Bilbo's journey and Bilbo's adventure, right? And um, uh, this is yet another example of that. But this this moment is, I think, a very important moment. Um, the girding on of the sword is always an important moment, right? Um, and here, again, one of the reasons I'm thinking about the walking stick moment is that this is sort of the parallel. Uh, Frodo is stepping out. Now, He's already been swept off by the road, right, to some extent. You know, he, he, he stepped out his door, and he did not keep his feet, and he was swept to all sorts of places. The old forest, Tom Bombadil's house, the Barrow Downs, um, Weathertop, right, all sorts of places he's been swept off to um, on his road. Um, and yet, there is also a sense in which this is the moment that he's really setting, because he thought he, but the other journey was just the journey to Rivendell right? That first adventure is done. It's now time for the next adventure. And Nancy, it is like um, the ceremony of knighthood uh, in its way. Absolutely. Um, and uh, 
Um, uh, yeah. Oh, thank you, Bjorn in Exile, for drawing my attention back to those. It is so easy for me to miss comments. I appreciate that. I'll come back to those in a second. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, I think it's it's very important for uh, seeing Fro- Frodo is stepping out, right? Not of his own door, of Elrond's door, um, but he is stepping out on his adventure. And where Bilbo fantasized about having a sword instead of a walking stick, briefly, right, before he freaked out. Um, and even then, he only built up to the sword instead of the walking stick gradually. Even after he found the sword, he forgot about it completely um, uh, until he wakes up at the beginning of chapter five um, and puts the ring in his pocket, right? That's when he remembers his sword. And then he names the sword, right? When he's out doing his first uh, uh, really successful uh, uh, solo action adventuring, right? Um, I know his tr- uh, riddle contest with Gollum is truly his first successful solo adventure, but um, anyway, um, putting the sword on Frodo, placing him in this role, showing again the continuity, right? It isn't, it's, 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 it's a special thing. It isn't just that Frodo's story is part of the great tales, right? Is, it resonates with the lay of Baron and Luthien and the winning of the great jewel. It's not just that, right? Is that his story also recapitulates something much closer to home, connects him to something much closer to home and much closer to him. <clears throat> Bilbo is, in a sense, explicitly... Um, binding them together, right? Um, you know, he's adopted Frodo and made him his heir many years ago, right? But there is a sense in which that itself is being recapitulated here as well. But in, like, a literary context, right? In the context of adventure and of stories, um, not of Bag End. Um, and you're certainly right, Fourth Dauntless, that Bilbo is also just worried about Frodo. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he is worried about him, and we'll see more about his concern for his safety in the passing on of the Mithril Coat, which we won't get to this week. Um, but um, but yes, it is the next chapter of the story of the sword, uh, Almerea, as well. You're right. Um, and I wonder, Turambar, that is one of the things that I am thinking about. Um, is there a subtle encouragement here that Bilbo is making by drawing this kind of explicit link to um, drawing this this kind of explicit link between Frodo's adventure and his own, is Bilbo encouraging Frodo to think of it as a there and back again journey? You 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 will come back. I came back, right? Not unchanged, right? But I came back, um, and now you can take that role as well. Um, maybe if he takes his sword he will also be luck-bearer as well, right? Um, or uh, to be blessed, as Frodo himself will come to see it uh, later on. Um, but I absolutely, Bard, I completely agree with you that um, uh, since it guts me seeing how much unspoken emotion passes here hiding under hobbitry, um, 
like somebody sending off his son to war. Absolutely. Yes. Um, there are some very intense emotions here. Um, and it's one of the reasons we see Bilbo fumbling and stammering around with this, why we see him so shy and embarrassed, um, because he does feel very strongly. Um, and this is a really, and he knows this is a really important thing. He doesn't want to minimize this, right? And yet he doesn't know, as Mary will say later on, um, hobbits don't know how to talk when a jest is out of place. A jest is out of place here. Right, and he doesn't know how to talk. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we will see more of this, of course, next time. Notice Frodo doesn't say anything. We don't get any words from Frodo. Frodo accepted it gratefully, right? He is grateful. To Bilbo, um, and he accepts it not eagerly, not like "oh, sweet, I always hoped I would get your sword," um, but um, but he's grateful, right? Um, and I wonder, I wonder how much of the significance of this—I mean, surely much of it—he's feeling obviously he is very sensitive to the emotional significance of this, what this means to Bilbo. What is the, what it means that Bilbo is doing this for him? Um, all of those things. But, um, uh, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, I bet Frodo is quite a bit choked up, that violinist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yes. Yes. Now let me go back, uh, Bjorning, to those uh, comments you were giving me, re-giving me before, and I'll end with these. Um, Kendall had been saying that um, uh, Frodo has gifts representing all of the great races. Yeah, that is going to be fun to see, right? Um, here's Frodo and Bilbo kind of doubling down on Elrond's symbolism. Right, the significance that the company of the ring shall represent all the free peoples. Frodo by himself is representing all the free peoples, as of course the mouth of Sauron will point out later on. Right, the marks of a conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, Frodo is definitely bearing the marks of a conspiracy. And then uh, Eruahil was saying, uh, Sting's shabby cover points to Gandalf's power, cloaked, or Frodo's cloaking the ring's power while in the Morgul Vale. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the concealment of something um, that is uh, what glittering suddenly cold and bright. Um, the power of Sting being suddenly revealed when it is drawn uh, from its old shabby leathern scabbard. Um, uh, that cloaking. Yeah, I agree. That's... Um, um, that does seem to be a big deal, right? Um, and it by itself is um, also kind of like... Um, I don't know. I was going to say it's in a way like Frodo himself, but I think that's not what I mean. I think it is more... There is power... Frodo's quest is going to be supported by power, by concealed power, right? Just as Frodo will have the magical elf blade sting to draw upon at need, right? 
um, uh, he, um, but it's, but it's concealed, right? Concealed in an old shabby weathered scabbard. It is cloaked, like Gandalf's power is cloaked. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Jordan, what a fascinating question. So how many of those items does Frodo have on his person at the Cracks of Doom? Well, tune in in 25 years when we get to the Cracks of Doom. Uh, but that's a great question. Jo write that down somewhere, Jordan, right? Uh, somewhere durable. Uh, and uh, um, we totally need a... We're doing that, right? We're totally going to build an archive, like a vault, right? We need to make a vault for comments and questions to be asked when we get there. Yeah, yeah. The future question collection. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yep, yep. It's coming, Jordan. It's coming. It's coming. Really, it is. Really, it is. Um, okay. Um, all right. With that, we shall end for the evening tonight. Um, uh, we'll come back and we'll do the Mithril Coat next week, of course, the second half of uh, this scene between Bilbo and Frodo. Um, but uh, uh, it is getting late and I'm trying to be better about ending on time. Um, so, uh, uh, <laughs> very good. Very good. All right. Um, it is field trip time. So thank you for joining us, those of you who are here just for the text discussion. And uh, welcome to everybody who is... Um, Oh, hang on a second. I gotta do my thing here. <laughs> Good evening. Redraw my screen. Okay. Good evening. How are you, Valori? I am doing good. Good to be back. Excellent. Very good. But uh, no, you're right about the the emotion stuff, though. It's definitely like it's like a Minnesota goodbye. Pretty much. Yeah, and I just... and I hear. I think you were saying before too that it feels frightfully British. This whole like very British. Yeah. Very, very British problem. Yes. Yeah. I, I totally but it, agree. It, it's like it was like when, you know, I'd say goodbye to my grandpa after Thanksgiving or something like that. It was, you know, just a lot of quiet and then a lot of, you know, every now and then it'd be broken by a sign going, Yeah, well I suppose, you know. Yes. Yes. I, which was you know, which is Minnesota for Oh, I love you so much. <laughs> Please <Right>. take care <laughs> of yourself, my precious, <laughs> precious treasure. <laughs> yes. 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 Exactly. But they, they uh, just can't do it. They can't break that wall. And it's it's yep. Yep. very much the same with Hobbit. <laughs> exactly. All right, so we're headed back to Oregon, right? Yes, I believe so. Uh, you'll have to you'll have to pick me up on where we were last time. Okay, right. Yeah. So uh, we're gonna we're just, let's just head back to Gwingris. I still have the uh, oh. milestone here. Oh, right. Um, but, uh, we, so last time we were looking around, um, we, we just looked around town and we were trying to figure out, um, uh, what was going on here. We were noticing that we had, so the, uh, let me see if I can recap the theories. Um, mm -hmm. theories were, we had, um, we were noticing that there's very little in the way, not only is there very little in the way of defense, which we noticed before, but there's very little in the way of city, 
exactly, right? Oh yeah. I mean, we have we have the freestanding hall over here, right? Um, you know the rectangular hall, which is like a I don't know dance hall. Or so we were theorizing that each freestanding building had its own separate, like, pleasure function, basically, right? Like you'd have your uh, you know your dance parties over here in the hall. Uh, you have your storytelling corner down here in the corner where we get this nice gazebo with the slope leading up to it and the nice lawn all in front of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we got our we we, we got our, our storytelling and oratory uh, gazebo over there. Um, we've got um... okay. There we go. Sorry, I couldn't turn around for a second there. Um, Sorry, I got ported to the wrong place. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No problem. We've got like That's the right. big old building in the top corner, which I was speculating might have actually been a place where people were um, uh, a place where people were were, st- were were living like there were there would have been living quarters perhaps up there. Um, we were looking mm-hmm. at some towers, which could have been individual quarters and things like that. Um, I forgot what we said this big uh, round gazebo was, but again, some other kind of function. Um, maybe music. That's what we're saying. Maybe uh, like uh, uh, chamber music, right? Maybe this was like round for Dancing. like cool acoustical effects or something like that. Um, yeah, something. Who knows? Who knows? But anyway, it's it certainly there. Certainly, do not seem to be like you know the city square and the merchant shops and you know like you know any of the normal things that you find in a city. Um, uh, so that was what we were. That was what we were matching. Oh, and Valor, let me show you one quick thing because we yeah. want to keep our eye out for it, and I want to make sure okay. that you that you see it. So if you come up here to the come up here to this um, this because there's one there's another one somewhere else. But we were totally stumped by this thing on the ground. Yeah, it looks like it could have like this awkward sculpture of a tree that fell over, but it looks like it fell off something, and we can't, for the life of us, see where it could have fallen from. I mean, there's nothing like it anywhere up around. Um, yeah. And there's there's another identical heap of tree branches slash antlers slash something. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But anyway, so we just, like, wanted to note this so that if we not only if we see anything like this in other ruins in around Eregion, but if we can find anything even in this category might help us to possibly understand it. But so anyway, okay. Someone tried to assemble IKEA furniture and gave up. Yeah, it, it's it's very strange. Now it's possible that it's uh, not you know modern, right? Hang on, let's go out the door. We could go out through the wall, but let's go. No, let's go out the door. Um, uh, it's possible that it's modern, right? That it has nothing to do with the old buildings, except the texture of it looks identical to some of the stuff that's built into the walls. So I think it, hmm. I think it was original, uh, but who knows? Yeah, maybe. Okay, so setting out from here, we're going to head uh, south, but there's something, wasn't there something, isn't there a, isn't there a, a place to go to in the, i got to turn off my overhead light here. Um, because it's dark again. Isn't there yeah. a place to go to in the middle of the woods up here? Am, am, am I recalling uh, that correctly? I did the completionist Oregian at one point years ago. Um, it's called egg. There's yeah, there's some caves up in here, aren't there? 
I forget. Man, I haven't been out here in years. JJ thinks, by the way, that that thing that we're looking at is stone covered by metal, which is finished to look like wood. I totally buy that. Oh, you like my fiberglass door that's fiberglass covered around stuff that's supposed to be wood? It's something like that, yeah. Yeah. And etched with lasers to look like real wood. Yeah. Okay, so the uh, also I always like observing the mobs that are in the area. We have horns, right? Twisted horns. Yep. Living here, which is interesting. So we have the trees that are becoming entish. Yeah. Um, we have. Okay, right. Sad Fareg. That's what I'm remembering, right? Isn't that it? Yeah. Oh, and we've got a yep. we got a we got a wood troll here, and yep. the third one is the 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 holly tender right there. So, in other words, what we're seeing the trend here, um, uh, the trend here in um, Regian so far as far as the lay of the land and stuff is concerned is the natural world that is being twisted, right? The twisted yes. horns, the wood trolls. And the unexpectedly aggressive bog guardians or tree guardians or whatever the heck they are. And yeah, some there is a sickness in nature. Also. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we have... This is not become... Like, nobody else lives here. Right? That's pretty much... Well, we'll find some people further south who live here. Um, but the implication is that nobody really lives here. Um, but that um, the natural world has sort of overgrown it, and yet this taint has grown up in the natural world. This little spot here, this is from, we plant seeds here, right? Yeah. This is supposed to be one of the few wholesome spots that have been untouched by the blight. Right. Right. Oh, look, yeah, here's the cave. Which okay, might be so... due to the presence coming back. The, the, to... Not the cave, not the, cave the, 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 the blightless spots of goodness right like, right so so the twisting of things around here why are things being twisted why do we have um unhappy wood trolls and such um and uh horns gone bad um sauron jj's asking me if i've ever met a happy wood troll and i don't think i have Man, even um, in Christmas land, they were angry. Yeah. The wood. But shouldn't there be? Shouldn't there I be? Don't what's, know. what's the in-game story about the wood trolls? Are the wood trolls created from horns? Are they like twisted horns that are further twisted into wood trolls? Is that you know made in mockery events kind of deal? Is that what we're? Um, I don't know. I was always assuming that the the wood trolls are kind of an allusion to Treebeard's comment about trolls being made in mockery events. Um, uh, Drosnik is wondering if a Nazgul allied with the wood trolls nearby. Drosnik, that's a really good thing to remember. Remember that... um, uh, Remember Gandalf's words about the fear that lay on the land? Like how he could tell a Nazgul had been through, right? Mm -hmm. Um... So having some kind of, you know, link back or memory of the uh, the Nazgul passing through, that the Nazgul themselves have kind of, like, awokened or, or uh, um, you know, kind of reinfected this land 
is uh, yeah there's some there's some hot spots for some real mumbly jumbly magicy wagicy stain stuff that that's been causing a lot of trouble in this area yeah I forget what the specifics are yeah maybe we'll get a chance to explore it later well let's go into this cave and see what we find we here darn it oh yeah that's right it i don't it's think he's locked yeah it's yeah. it's for the big old troll when you're planting seeds i think oh right and as i recall it's it's a it's pretty it's far a... down a quest chain isn't it yeah but it wasn't like a big thing either i think there was like one boss in there yeah yeah Nothing of note. Oh, well, I was wanting to see if there was any evidence that anyone else had ever lived there. I don't know. Hmm. Mm. Oh, well. Well, where to next? Well, let's carry on, then. Um, yes. We can't... Let's see, is there any... I don't think there's anything else down here, right? Let's keep... Uh, let's just keep heading... Yeah sort of, let's go down the hill, having climbed up the hill, let's head down the hill. We know more trolls here. A troll lobber, which sounds like he lobs trolls, but I suspect that's not what he actually does. Lobber and gobber. Yeah. Okay. Whoa. Help. Got stuck there behind a tree. No, we can't go through here at all? It looks like it's right yeah. there, but no. Okay, we gotta go around, I guess. We're in a box canyon. Where where were we almost? Oh, that's the edge, right? Okay. All right. Okay, so we're skirting the edge of the accessible places on the map. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh man, we got too many hunters. No such thing. <laughs> no such thing as too many hunters. Nope. Don't get nerfed tomorrow, though. <sighs> oh yeah, that'll be fun. Okay. I gotta say, the brawler class is cathartic on a day. Oh, hang on. I was doing raid stuff. Okay. Alright, so there's the road again. And this is the road both south from Gwingaris and uh, south from Rivendell. Or from the troll shaws. Mm -hmm. And it's the same stone, right? Looks like it was definitely set, but it's not carved like the Numenorian road. Yeah, it's that weird sort of flagstone again. Right, which looks like probably if they were all complete, it would have made some kind of subtle pattern. But, um... Mm -hmm. um you think these are dwarf-made stones since they were sort of in collaboration? Maybe. Well, or were they yet? I mean... I wonder how, what role the dwarves played in all hmm. of this. Exactly. Let's... I guess we can head down to that other town. Wasn't there something Wasn't there something else down here? The Dunlending Camp? Camp yeah, of some sort. That's what I yeah, thought. Dunlending I want to see the camp. Alright, let's, let's go up there. Head east. Where are we? Yeah, we're not... We gotta... Right, it's not over here, right? Just still the nature thing, who warns? Big old fireflies. Big fireflies, trolls. Oh, and there's lots of critter dens out here, too. Well, the camp is below, above the word Ereg in Glen, Glen Ereg. 
Right, okay. I'm remembering the terrain around here a little bit. Still getting many of the same things. Mm -hmm. Fireflies. The tree lurkers. Notice um, this forest that we're in. Did we miss the camp back that way? Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah, it's right by the pond. Okay. Um, ten. Ten minutes. I, um, what was I just thinking? Oh, yes, I was noticing how light the trees are here. That is, it looks like this whole area had been cleared before. You know, like this hmm. is like new growth, um, relatively young trees. True. I don't know anything about the nature of holly trees. They might, maybe they're like walnuts where nothing likes to really grow under them except ivy. That's the one thing that puzzles me. They're, ivy and holly have a symbiotic relationship. I wonder if we don't see any ivy anywhere. Mm -hmm. Okay. Get that song stuck in my head now. Yeah, thank you. I was thinking the same thing. Okay, so we've got a Dunlending camp with a banner mm -hmm. with what on it exactly Let's it's see. so dark blood smears? it looks like a tar tip ladder it doesn't look like a dunlending banner it looks like a tar tip banner yeah except with even less artistic value than usual yeah those are um, just smears and her here yeah. we're building it's a hand towel they just stuck out a pole it literally <laughs> yeah. it is a, it, there's nothing there's no design on it it's just it some claw marks like and blood design. yeah um, we're building what? A storage shed? A nice long building to store things in? Are they building it or did they come come across a work site? Well, it all looks relatively new, though that stone looks old. I got all these supplies undercover here. I mean, building a nice flat foundation, though the foundation is not for the building, right? The building is just the there's just a roof around it. Um, it doesn't look like Dunlending dwellings. No, they didn't build like this at all. Yeah. Their buildings don't look like this. Dunlending use like nomadic, I wouldn't say yurts, but nomadic uh, building constructions, like things you can easily pick up and take with you someplace. Yeah, and the ones, the few settlements they have, they're almost like uh, roundhouses. Yes, they were generally roundhouses. Some kind of long houses, but not squared off like this. It's all very square. Not those perfectly yeah, square like beams. It looks yeah, like Adzo's camp. They didn't even yes, it does look like Adzo's camp. They didn't even use square beams that I, I recall. They hired Thornley to make this. 
I bet they chased off the actual workers out and took over. What's going on over here? Why did they make a scaffold around this stump? Uh, that was probably while they were cutting it down. Yeah? Maybe. I don't know much about because cutting trees this big. wanted to cut a tree up higher? Yeah, there's... Yeah, it's, it's very strange that they have it cut so high. Yeah. Um, you, you would do a couple of um, cuts toward the bottom. They'll cut out a couple of chunks toward the side that you want it to fall enough that then you can just... Right. You know, mm-hmm. chop the other side and then timber. Yeah, it's right, clean yeah. on this side and it's jagged on this side, which means that this is the they would the tree would have fallen this this way. Right. Well, there's definitely Over some there. cutting going on at the top of this thing. Yeah. 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 You can see there's flatness, but then it looks like it was cut, but then it's weirdly shaped that the bark didn't break off correctly, like something. Cut the tree, but then lifted the lifted the tree trunk up for some reason. Well, yeah. that, that you don't cut all the way through when you're cutting. You cut most of it, and then you sort of get it to tip over, and the rest is right. gravity right. does. Some... Huh. That's strange. Well, let's see if we can find anything else. So, okay, so here we got. Oh, I got more just lumber sitting around. And these are planks. Actual planks. The Dunlendings did totally not use planks. Back in the scaffolding, there were a whole bunch of them, and there's um, covered, there's 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 covered planks over there that are seasoning. Right, right, right. Yeah, Drosnik, I'm thinking maybe Saruman wants planks too. I think these are clearly for export. And it Isengard does su- big five. Right, it does suggest that. I don't know if it's like different technology exactly or if it's just have they been instructed in you know lumber techniques so i'm just kind it was of a camp that had like here but i think we're it was a, it was a it. camp that had supplies and and like relative shelter i mean that's a great place to crash if you need some you need to set up a temporary base yeah yeah, but I I I'd like that the Saramanic influence, right? We can see, oh, yeah. we can the see the, yeah. The fact that they're Dunlendings does imply it's a Saramanic influence. Exactly, they've been sent up here. Yeah, they're not refugees. Right, right. Could the Dunlendings have driven off, um, um, ruffians coming up from the south? Ruffians generally don't do this much work either. This is definitely like this is Adzo's first failed project. Right. I mean, we're a goodly ways north of Dunland. Um, I want to know. I want to know who would have been here because this isn't Elven either. This is the place where the elves were trying to, you know, retain to the point where the elves are are sitting in cramped, nasty, moldy ruins under the stars and presumably yeah. rain. I don't. Did they hire human workers out here, or they let the humans? Did they let the humans camp here? Do they know they're out here? Yeah, I mean the. Um, uh, again, I was just looking at the map, and the refugees we know were following the South Road, up towards yes. Bree. Mm-hmm. That's why so many of them were ending up at Bree, and this is way off that path. Oh yes, and. 
it's way north of Dunland. The entire Enidwyth lies in between. So, and this is the northern part of Eregi and what's more. So mm-hmm. I would certainly think that these have to be Dunlendings that have been sent north for a reason, either to cause trouble or, as it seems, to bring back lumber. Um, yeah. The thing is, are they sending the lumber to Isengard, or are they using the lumber here to some other purpose? Is, Isen- you know, is Isengard trying to set up bases in other areas? Yeah, perhaps so. In which case, has he been training some Dunlendings in building as well? It would seem so, based on the buildings that we're seeing around here, which are unlike any other Dunlending buildings. I'd say they had a human foreman at the very least. You mean non-Dunlending foreman? Like a... Yeah, because this is distinctively Breland style. Yeah. There's another scaffold tree. That's a also, rock. Oh, right, a scaffolded rock. You're right. Why are we building Maybe a scaffold up around watch- the rock? Maybe they're setting up watchtowers. It would make a good anchor. I guess. Especially if they didn't trust themselves to build a tower that would stand up. It's like building a garden shed, but higher, right? Right, exactly. I'm looking at the banner. Yeah, that banner is really disappointing. Yeah, I'm going to say maybe orcs are kind of the ones checking up every now and then, making sure they're doing what they're supposed to. But... Yeah, it would not surprise me. But unlike orc things, we don't have human bones decorating it, just tusks. Right? Like, um. No, these are horns. Are they horns? I think so. They got, um, they got like cooping on them for little metal bands. Right. No, but I thought they might be tusks like boar tusks. No, it looks like they ripped these sort of hunting horns off of somebody. Yeah, maybe. Oh, no, not the ones at the bottom. The ones at the top. Oh, ones at the top. Okay, the ones at the bottoms are definitely hunting horns. Maybe for maybe it's this is the alert tower. Like, sound one of these horns if you have trouble. Right. We'll send the horns over. Well, I remember that's part of yeah. one of the quests that you get here as you come and sound yeah. the tower. Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, those look like mumak or uh, maybe very big wild boar. Yeah. We've There's seen a bunch some of wild. boar to the east up the, in the valley. Yeah, we've seen some boar with tusks like this. Um, yeah. There's like know, a big daddy big. board, too. Right, right. Yeah. So I think it's a Dunlending banner. As orcish as it might seem, I don't think even... I mean, I was saying it doesn't have much artistic merit, which is certainly true. But even the orcs tend to actually make designs. Even if it's just like claws on a hand or something like that. They They still... This is just slashes. Looks like it's, yeah, this these are definitely humans whose spirits have been broken. I think so. Very, very abstract. Very abstract. It's, it's um, a banner to have a banner, not to fulfill any purpose. Got a boar mount if you want to see boar tusks as the Ames version. Oh yeah. Look at them chompers. Mm-hmm. My, what big teeth you have. Yes. Yeah, I, think so. I, think so. oh, I think they're definitely boar tusks. 
Well, yeah. So we see, because even this house that's, again, I don't think this is a house. I think this is just a larger um, storage. Like, this is like a, this is like a, uh, a warehouse, essentially. Warehouse. Like an outdoor yeah, kind of... Up top. Yeah, exactly. They'll, yeah. They'll, they'll cover that over with canvas or thatching or something like that. And then they've built this flat platform so you can stack lots of things on it without it sliding down the hill. Um, the stone makes me think they've put more thought into it, though. You wouldn't do masonry under that. Yeah, I agree. I, but, I think building a I headquarters or, or at least a, a scout outpost. Maybe. But for now, at least they're just using it for lumber. Um, yeah. Yeah. Remember, so Saruman was trying to get his reach all the way out here, and he eventually succeeds, as we'll see. Right, exactly. So that does... It does suggest that. so. So far, we have the old memory of the Noldor, the ancient memory of the Noldor. We have, you know, up, up in Gwingris. We have um, nature, which has grown, you know, like the forest, which has grown since then, but which has become twisted, right, with the Huorns and the Wood Trolls. And now we see emissaries of Saruman, um, Saruman's Reach, having gotten long, Amathorn, um, absolutely. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Well, Hrothgar is right. Eregion is like a lumber room. Uh, thing wanted, always buried. So we'll keep looking next week. Uh, next week we will head down to. Uh, what is this? No, that's not this other. There's another one down here, another ruin, uh, which we can check out. Um. Also, there's the path to the troll shaws that goes up through the giant valley, but. Yes, which I think. There's yeah. nothing there except critters. Okay. I think we'll. I think we'll save it. Okay. I think we'll save it for when we cool. come down into Oregon. Then we'll explore the ways into Oregon. But okay, um, so we'll check out the that pass and the Redhorn Pass later. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us today as we continue our exploration of Eregion in preparation for the fellowships actually coming to Eregion sooner rather than later. Um, tune in next week. We will be back next week for uh, for more. I should be um, Tuesdays. We should be fine through Thanksgiving week and on into December. So we should be good here for a little bit. So thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye now.